I learned a few things along the way. One was I learned about myself that I just didn't really like hierarchy or bureaucracy. Mm. And, you know, as I, as I told my friends, when I ultimately made the decision to quit, I told them, I was like, you know what? I just don't think I'm that typical South Asian person who can just obey hierarchy and authority at all costs. And, and I discovered that about myself in the preceding years. And my friends, meanwhile, were like, yeah, no shit, Sherlock. <laughs> Welcome to Wise and Wine, a play on the phrase, rise and shine. Now look here, folks. I've had five jobs in the last two years, and that shit just ain't normal. Or is it? No, no, it's not. So I'm turning to diverse people who inspire me both professionally and personally with careers that didn't exactly start at point A and end at point B. We'll explore how their families, their cultures, and their communities impacted their career decisions, as well as the exact moment they decided to pursue their passions, even if that passion wasn't a direct path to a pension or a 401k. Hopefully, I'll come away knowing how they became the badass, the confident, the strategic people that I admire. And if I don't come out of this project a little wiser, well, at least I'll enjoy the boozy wine ride. I mean, I have a lot of fun doing this podcast. It's it's a lot of work, but it really is a lot of fun. But it's super fun when you get the perfect guest. And Kanoor Bahal is the perfect guest. I mean, she's kind of the reason why I created the podcast. Not because I knew her before, but she embodied every reason I had for creating the podcast for myself in the first place. And Kanoor has written a book called I Quit, The Life-Affirming Joy of Giving Up. And it's a collection of quitting stories, reasons why people have quit a wide variety of things, whether it's careers, relationships, and she's got the book broken down into different categories because, you know, your girl here loves a list and <laughs> loves to have things categorized. So it fit into everything I was looking for. And Kanoor could not be more kind, more energetic, more of the perfect guest. I really had to, I did very little lobbying her way in terms of questions and she absolutely ran with it in directions that I did not expect. And she's funny and charming. And, you know, I don't think I have a ton of experience with South Asian Americans. And so she gave some really great insight about what it was like for her and and clear that she's not anywhere near being a monolith, but knowing, being very clear that her experiences, that her, her parents' experiences as immigrants did impact her and has a real sense of, of what that means in her career and in her business. And when she thinks about the importance of diversity and inclusion, um, yeah, she taps into that from her family. So beyond just being beautiful and funny and creative and somebody that's quit three corporate careers, um, she also came with an appropriately full glass of wine, an appropriately full glass of wine from the Nasty Women Wines, which she talks a little bit about. So without further ado, 
I want to introduce you to my guest, Kanoor Bahal. Hi, Kanoor. Welcome to Wise and Wine. What are you drinking today? Hi. Oh, oh, thank you for having me. I am drinking a Pinot Noir that is by a wine company whose um, wine club I belong to. It's called Nasty Woman Wines. Love it. Very cool yes. brand founded Love in the immediate it. aftermath of Trump being elected. <laughs> Very unapologetically feminist and progressive. And their branding is amazing. And their wines are really tasty, too. Amazing. And is that local to where you are? Or can we find this anywhere? I feel like I need to support them. Uh, they're based in Oregon. I know oh. that much. Okay. Um, I know the woman who founded the winery because she and I belong to the same like women's business group on Facebook. Um, so that's how I became aware of it. Um, but, uh, but yeah, no, I think their wine club uh, mails wines like all over the place. So yeah, I mean, I'm in Seattle for reference and they're in Oregon. So definitely I've been to the Oregon coast quite a bit. Went to Oregon wine country actually a few months ago for my friend's bachelorette party. It's a really, really cool place. Lots of, lots of beauty there for sure. I have a couple, at least a couple different regions even. Yeah. I think when we went there, there's a winery and I, of course I'm terrible with names, but it's owned and operated by um, an African-American man. So I was like, when we go, we have to go to his winery. So we did go to one while we were there. That's amazing. I, I, I want to get the name of that, of that place, please. I will find it and send it to you. Yeah. Yay. So we are all off topic. I love this. All right. You have earned a BA from <laughs> NYU in journalism, film, and politics, as well as an MA in international relations from the University of Chicago. What was your career path that you envisioned for yourself when you <laughs> completed these majors? Like, what did you think you were going to do at that time? Oh my gosh. Well, I mean, from the time I was three years old until my final semester of college, I thought I was going to work in the business side of the film and television industry. You know, I really wanted to be like a producer, maybe some writing, but I really wanted to be like the person behind the creatives, you know? Um, like when I, I say when I was three, cause like my family tells me the story of like when I was three and like people would ask me like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I would say, I'm going to Hollywood. <laughs> you know? and so, um, so that stuck with me for a really long time. And even though I was a journalism major in college, it was definitely um, kind of like a, a second choice. You know, I wanted to be a film major, um, but parents weren't super happy with that <laughs> possibility. <laughs> uh, but I also liked school. You know, I like studying a lot of different things. So I was very happy going to liberal arts school and casting a wide net, you know, and still just taking all the electives I could at the art school and producing student films and that sort of thing. And all my internships were kind of oriented toward a career in, in the entertainment industry too. Um, so that that was like my goal. And uh, then final semester of senior year comes around and I was like, shit, I don't wanna ever live in Los Angeles. <laughs> wah, 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 <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, um, you know, like location, 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 you know, is a, is a saying in real estate and, um, I just, you know, I was in college in New York City and just couldn't begin to think of living my life in a car mm -hmm. and, you know, um, that sort of thing. And so I, I made a pretty abrupt change. I said, okay, well, what's my second love? What's my second passion? And 
as you mentioned, like one of my minors was in politics and I grew up traveling internationally a lot, you know, and, and, um, and was always very kind of socially conscious and charitably minded. And, you know, so I thought, okay, well, I like politics and I like international work. And so I, that's what led me to get a master's degree in international relations, because I thought that would set me on the path to kind of doing international development work and doing some good social change work in the world. So um, grad school uh, international relations took me like six months afterward to find a job in my field, but I did. And then it took three months in that job for me to get sexually harassed Oh crap! and for me to learn that I don't want to be in that field any longer. (laughs) So, um, um, so yeah, that was a real watershed moment where, um, uh, you know, I, I, I got the asshole fired of course, but it was one of those things where like, long story short, I, he should have been fired a decade before I ever even got there, you know, but, um, no one had the courage or the spine or the backbone to actually do the hard thing of their job, like fire someone who is a menace. Um, and so, um, I made it happen. I was like 25 and you need to tell like 60 something old white men to do their goddamn job. Um, so you can imagine how that went for me mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, and how I was treated afterward. Um, but it, it, the whole process really just like unearthed for me, just the profound moral and organizational sickness in that industry. And so I was like, pretty like, Ooh, I don't want to be in this, in this field any longer. So, um, yeah. And so then that took me to um, wanting to work in the private sector because I was very passionate about social innovation. And I thought I want to learn how corporate and business and for profit does innovation and bring that back to the social sector. So that's what led me to Deloitte, uh, where I was in management and innovation consulting. Um, and a few years there, loved most of my time there, a great deal, learned so much. Um, at the end of that, I was just ready to strike out on my own and work for myself. And so that's brings us to eight years ago to present day where I have my own company called Mindhatch. Tell me more about Mindhatch. I'm so curious about that step two between I'm sick of working for people. I'm going to do this myself. Yeah. I, I have that thought all the time, but I haven't taken, what was that step that got you to, I'm done. We're starting yeah. this business. And what was that process like to start your own business? Yeah, well, I think there are a couple of different steps. I think, you know, through my, my you know, years working in uh, a big four consulting company, I learned a few things along the way. One was I learned about myself that I just didn't really like hierarchy or bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as I, as I told my friends when I ultimately made the decision to quit, I told them, I was like, you know what? I just don't think I'm that typical South Asian person who can just obey hierarchy and authority at all costs. And, and I discovered that about myself in the preceding years. And my friends, meanwhile, were like, yeah, no shit, Sherlock. I could have told you that like 15 years ago, <laughs> you know, that you're like, have a more of an anti-authoritarian streak than you knew you did, you know? And so, um, so I think I was like trying to like do the right thing for most of my life, you know? And I think I just hit this moment in that career, I was like, oof, doing the right thing is not paying off. It is not, it just doesn't feel good. That's not the right choice for me. Who am I doing these right things for, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, um, um, so there was that, like, like the learning about myself and what I wanted. Um, and then it was also just uh, the things that I wanted to do professionally 
I could not do there, you know? And so it was almost a little bit of like a, a non-decision where I was like, oh, if I want to do these things that I'm really passionate about, I have to do them on my own because there's literally no other company in the world that is combining the things that my company now does, you know? And so, so it's equal parts, um, like a professional content choice and then equal parts, a lifestyle decision of, you know, can I work for myself? Can I have autonomy? Um, can I get rid of the horrible artifice of working in an office every day um, and still support myself, you know? So um, yeah, it was a, an experiment and, and both halves. Yeah. Perfect. And then thinking about your business and I think about having to sell yourself, which I imagine you have zero problems with, but when you're creating <laughs> something that's never existed, that you have a unique space, how do you go about selling what you do and pricing what you do for people that may not be ready to test this thing out. You know what I mean? How do you do it when people aren't ready to take a chance on this new thing? Oh gosh. Well, I mean, I've had my touch for eight years and I'm still figuring out the sales thing. <laughs> oh my God. That is like a never ending learning curve, you know? So, I mean, where I feel most secure is in talking about my methods, right? Because I'm an expert in the methods. And so um, whether or not I'm, I'm a good salesperson, I'm starting to learn that I don't think I am. But uh, I think if a good salesperson gets me in the room with a client, I can bring it home. But, uh, but yeah, I'm still kind of figuring a lot of that out for myself. But you know, I think I'm pretty lucky where um, by and large, the people who find me, they're already curious if not ready enough that they that they know what they want right and so at that point then it's just kind of speaking to me or someone on my team to kind of have that that confidence and that faith you know because a lot of people um you know I do very very niche things you know um like I do design thinking and human-centered design consulting and training you know I, I do organizational improv which is like my trademark term for bringing improv into the workplace you know I do facilitation work. I do DEI work, you know? And so the things that I do are, are not, uh, they haven't jumped the shark as yet, you know? And so the vast majority of clients that I, that come to me are looking to do those things for the very first time. So there is like some, you know, counseling, you know, and kind of like easing of people's minds and kind of letting them know that, oh, this, just because it's new to you doesn't mean it's it's risky, you know. And so, um, so there is a lot of that um, empathy that I I draw from that I, I have from back when I was a linear thinker, you know. And um, and so I try to I try to retain that empathy for people who are like expressing an interest in something for the very first time, and they are maybe unsure of what it's going to be like. Yeah. Now, do you work with in a specific industry? Do you find that? Um certain I don't know if is it more tech is it more kind of human-centered work like who are you finding are your are your clients um all over the place and I'm so happy about that because I get bored easily <laughs> so you know I've worked uh I've worked with nonprofits I've worked with um the Starbucks and the Amazon of the world I've worked with like government agencies, like the State Department, you know? Um, yeah, it, it's really, really eclectic who, who I work with. And I think there's, with good reason, you know, one, like 
I'm an expert in methods and how to apply them, you know, to certain cultures and certain situations. Um, I'm not an industry or sector expert because um, that that to me feels boring. I think I'd get real bored <laughs> if I were like to pledge to just one one area of the economy, you know. And so, um, um, but um, but yeah, so I'm really pleased at how how varied my client list has been over the past eight years. Um, I think it also. I think I also going to prove my point or the point of all the services that I offer where like they're, they're all about achieving something greater than yourself. Right. So, I mean, that's why we work in teams. It's why we create teams and companies, you know, it's because we need to create something that's larger than the sum of our parts. Right. And, um, and that exists in every sector and in every industry, you know? And so, um, so that, I think that's why the things that MindHatch does are like so applicable in such a broad, a broad um, arena. I'm not yeah, ignoring yeah. the fact that you are a South Asian woman. So uh-huh. for people that may not be familiar with kind of your culture, your community, what was it like for you? Not And knowing that you're not a monolith and you're not speaking for everybody else, mm-hmm. but what was your experience mm-hmm. like growing up and how did your family and your culture kind of influence your career? Yeah, well, you know, thanks so much for like referencing the very real thing, which is like, I I don't speak for everyone's South Asian American experience, you know, but, um, but there definitely are, you know, common tropes, you know, that I think, um, where I speaking to another South Asian, we'd probably be head nodding along together. <laughs> a lot. So, um, so I think, you know, my, my upbringing is like, um, I definitely, definitely impacted a, a great deal of who I am today. You know, it's hard to escape that. I think, I think growing up, you know, I, um, you know, so I, I guess I can start with like my, my parents, you know, so like my, my, I grew up always knowing that my dad, you know, he grew up in Kenya, actually, he was like oh, second wow. generation Indian Kenyan. Oh. And um, his dad like owned a quarry in Nairobi. And I've got it over the years, it was like really important to my grandfather that like, his kids were going to be doctors, you know, and so <laughs> Sure enough, my dad and all of his brothers are doctors and their sister like got an MBA, you know, and so it was like very, education was always very important, you know, and I think even in that generation and that culture to educate girls was unusual, you know, but even that was really important in, in my, in my extended family. And so I come from that background where education is the most important thing, you know, and um, I'm grateful for that because I love learning, um, love school. I think my love for school and my ability to be good at it probably like shielded me from questioning what I really wanted, I think. Um, um, and like that doing the right thing, you know, get the grade for the sake of getting the grade kind of uh, kind of thing. Um, but my dad, back to him, you know, when he, 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 as he tells it, when he was like in eighth grade, he had to decide if he was going to be a lawyer, a doctor or an engineer. And he chose doctor, you know, and so, and from that point on, his entire schooling was dedicated to that, you know, and um, I kind of like grew up like hearing my dad, like, express regret about how he coincidentally, how he always wished he could study politics, you know, mm-hmm. and my response as like a spoiled kid growing up in America was like, dad, you still can go back to school, you know, or like he'd say, oh, I'm so jealous that you're taking singing lessons. I always wish I could sing. And I'm like, dad, you're 40. You still can't, you know, it's kind of like, um, like you still can't, you know? And so, um, so I think I, I, having been around some of the regretful 
mindsets. Mm. I think that kind of taught me to not have that, you know, and um, yeah. And so, and then again, you know, growing up in a South Asian, you know, family, yes, school is very important, of course, um, which I never rebelled against, I don't think. <laughs> and um, um, but there is that very much like, oh, there's like a very finite number of professions that are available to you, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I, my parents and my family are not very strict. They're not very traditional. You know, um, I definitely grew up around other Indian families who were way worse in that department. So I'm pretty grateful, um, who my parents were, um, that being said, I think it's kind of a, a limited imagination, right? There's a limited universe of options that you could conceive of, right? When everyone around you is a doctor and all their kids are becoming doctors or lawyers, you're kind of like, oh, that's all there is in the world, right? Um, um, I sometimes, I recently have been thinking like, oh, if I had been born into a different body, I think I would really enjoy like manual labor or some kind of like repetitive task like if I were like six feet tall and really strong, I'm kind of like, that seems really satisfying, <laughs> you know, just to have like, just to like see like the fruits of your labor, like right there in front of you and to see progress like that. It sounds really satisfying, you know, but, um, um, but yeah, so that's a little bit about like, like growing up, you know, and I think, um, I, I think attendant to that is just like risk aversion, you know, and I, I write about that in my book, actually, there's a chapter in the book about, actually an Anglo-Nigerian American woman who quit being a doctor. And we talked a lot about the cultural implications of that and the stigma and the shame. And I was actually in writing my book, like I went into writing my book, um, assuming that this stigma and shame against quitting was like an American thing. Mm-hmm. And then from interviewing a, a lot of people from different backgrounds realized like, no, this is like a universal thing. Unfortunately, it exists in so many cultures right and um and especially like uh like hearing this woman Yvonne's story you know um really kind of highlighted that for me where uh you know we there's a limited number of options available to you and and I found myself thinking back to kind of like you know and I write about this in the book you know like my parents like um certainly upwardly mobile they weren't necessarily like fleeing their respective countries but like any immigrant, they left their respective countries in search of a better life, right? right. For themselves mm-hmm. and for their children. And and you'd think that like, so my, my dad, like, you know, had several different passports. He like started med school in Uganda and had to flee in the middle of the night because Ida Amin was like genociding people, you know? And then he finished med school in England, you know, they moved to Canada, you know? And so like, they had um, like upheaval in their lives, right? And and so it's interesting, like, you know, you have like um, parents who like have that in America. And then instead of that upheaval and like going through that uncertainty themselves, that for some reason doesn't always translate into them like having a devil may care attitude about big life choices, you know? <laughs> it, it doesn't translate into like, oh yeah, we survived that, whatever you taking an extra year to finish college, who cares? You know, <laughs> like it's like, a, it's almost like the, the reverse has happened where like they get more risk averse, right? And they want less risk for, for their children. And so, so in the book, I write how like, God, like my dad went through all this stuff and like, and he like 
loses his mind when I make any tiny life change and any tiny life change I could make as like an educated American person is so frivolous compared to anything that he's gone through, you know, um, that it's, it's just interesting how that happens. And I, I think that might be, might be a common thing in immigrant families, you know, um, where, uh, the, the perspective is like, not what you might expect, um, that your parents come, come over with. Right. No, that's awesome. And you did a great job of transitioning into the book. So what led you to write your book? I quit the life affirming joy of giving up. Yeah. I mean, the, the kernel of the idea began years ago, I think, honestly, like right around the time I was quitting my last corporate career, you know, and, um, and I, I think around that time I was at that point, I quit. That was my third career that I quit. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I felt really good about it. <laughs> you know, I felt like this is matching my values and this is getting me closer to what I want, you know? And, um, and uh, so I, that kind of really uh, flipped a switch in my own mindset and into one of thinking like, wow, quitting is positive. Quitting is good. Quitting is progress. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then like I started my company and I started going on like meetings of people just again like talking to anyone who would listen about what my tech is all about and what I was trying to do with it and I found myself like you know it's a, a kind of an American thing but especially in the part of America where I was living at the time you always kind of like recite your resume at each other you know I did this then I did that then I moved here and and I found myself like asking people like oh wait wait, wait. like back up like tell me why you left that job or tell me why you didn't finish that degree or tell me why you left that city mm -hmm. and that's where I kind of really found myself getting really interested in other people's quitting stories mm -hmm. and learning firsthand that like wow I could learn about someone much more deeply and quickly if I ask them about their quitting stories, because what you learn from people's quitting stories are their values, you know, mm -hmm. like what's important to them. What, what trade-offs are they willing to make? You know, what are they willing to put up with and not willing to put up with? Uh, I think you can learn so much more about that than just hearing people's success stories, you know? And, um, um, and so the, the kernel of the idea happened ages ago. And then in 2020, the opportunity to kind of do a, a book writing program just landed in my lap and awesome. I just said yes and so one week last year I was never going to do anything with my idea a week later I was writing a book <laughs> so it happened really quickly awesome. and so in terms of doing the research for your book and finding people to share their stories did you find any kind of commonalities, whether that were commonalities between genders or cultures, or is everybody's story kind of uniquely different? Yeah, well, everyone's story is different. You know, the, the book is split up into a few different sections. So there's stories about people quitting jobs and careers, stories about quitting aspirations, quitting about, uh, sorry, stories about quitting habits, identities, uh, people and relationships as well. Um, so the stories are all uniquely different, but I'd say there definitely are some, some commonalities that come up. I mean, I think number one, I, I asked everyone I interviewed, do you have any regrets? And, um, these are all like happy quitters, right? So the initial response is no, no regrets. I would do it all over again. And then everyone gives it another think and they're like, I wish I'd quit sooner. <laughs> so I think that's, a, I think that's the most common thing is that people wish they had made that choice earlier than they had. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, and then I think another common thing that came out was another like another thing that I learned in writing the book, you know, um, was that people, these happy quitters really had this, like, they lived this idea of when you quit something, it's not that you're creating the absence of something in your life. You're not creating like a negative space in your life. Mm -hmm. You're often quitting towards something, right? You're seeking something that you cannot seek unless you leave something behind or out. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I think people really live that because I heard so many people say like, well, once I quit this, it just seemed like the world opened up to me and more of the things that I actually knew I wanted started arriving and coming, you know, and I, and I knew enough about myself to say yes to those things, you mm-hmm. know? And so I said, those are a couple, a couple of really common things that came up throughout. And I wonder why too, and I work in a, or I used to work in a space where I recruited um, MBA students who also had their undergraduate degrees in engineering. So super smarties, super motivated folks. And Mm -hmm. I was recruiting them for an engineering company. And I was, it was such a stark contrast between the managers who were hiring them, who were usually Uh white men. And of course they wanted to be diverse. So we were recruiting people of color and women of color who had, again, their MBAs and their engineering degrees. And the fear from the white men, the OWGs, as I call them, is that, well, they're not going to stay. They're going to leave. They're not going to stay. They're, ugh, they're just not going to stay here. And it's like, well, A, if you give them an experience that gives them a reason to stay, they'll stay. Yeah. But then I also wanted to say to your point, well, why are you staying? <laughs> and so yeah, exactly. yeah. intergenerational difference was, was so stark to me. So is that something that you found too? Is there kind of a generational piece yeah. thinking about your dad, thinking about even just what you see in your, in through mind hatch or through the book, are you seeing some of that yeah. too? Oh my God, I have so much to say on that topic. Like, thank you for bringing it up. I mean, I think, I think one, you know, like I, in my, my first career, there really was that like pervasive sentiment of like, who cares about junior staff? They're just going to leave in three years anyway, you know? And so and that was like said out loud, you know, and yes. like one, the organization was run on by junior staff, you know, like there's no way they could have done it without like low paid young people. But it was this real, just like, ugly, ugly, like dismissive attitude toward like the people in your organization, you know? And it's like, well, that's a problem. Turnover is not good, but there was like no instinct to do anything about it. It was more like, oh, it's because of them, not because of us. Right. Um, yeah. So it's real, just bad business, just bad at business. You know, if you're, if you're thinking that way. Um, um, and then, you know, I think what you mentioned is like, that's a really great question about like, well, why are you old white men staying here too? If you think so poorly of your workplace. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I really, um, I'm no fan of old white men. I'll just say it here and now, right? <laughs> I don't have a lot of like uh, grace to give, <laughs> but, but writing my book, I did find a lot of grace because I think like, you know, um, the stigma and the shame around quitting uh, is so embedded in our society, mm-hmm. right? Everybody feels that stigma and that shame. I also talk in the book about how 
you know, some acts of quitting are acts of privilege, right? Mm. Especially if you're quitting a job or if you're quitting a relationship, even unfortunately that has like, you know, privilege attached to it, you know? And, and so I try to be really clear in the book about like, yeah, some of these things are acts of privilege. The, but to that is even old white men, cis men, don't quit right and left, right? Mm -hmm. Even they are like trapped in things they don't want to be in. And that's because the stigma and the shame around quitting is so powerful, right? Like we're all victims of it. All of us are, you know, like even, even the most privileged among us don't feel like they can use their privilege to quit, you know? And so, um, so I think that's a little bit of a, a learning and extra grace I, I, I deduced for myself, you know, uh, that, that, you know, something, something's wrong with our society yeah. when, when like people aren't, people are stuck in jobs or relationships or life choices they made years before and feel like they can't make the change when really they can. And I found a lot of those, or I, I imagine I, this is what made me feel better about having to deal with them was that they're, they're coming from a place of fear that yeah. they're the primary, I'm guessing a good chunk of them were the primary earners in their family. And then also, what do I do if I leave that role to then go somewhere else? And will they hire me if I'm at this age? And so it's easier for me yeah. to stay here. It's safer for me to stay here. So once I kind of gave them that grace, it was still annoying, mm -hmm. but I was like, all right, there's a reason why you, you do. <laughs> yeah. crazy white people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so Right now, I am currently obsessed with Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos now that she's on trial. And I listen to a podcast every uh, Tuesday that comes out. And they're, the focus on her, and I guess there's a, a level of, I guess they give her pride. Like people seem really proud of her for quitting Stanford. And I think there was the same thing too with mm -hmm. Mark Zuckerberg, where they're being praised for quitting. And I'm wondering too, if that comes with, cultural privilege to your point like can I just randomly mm -hmm. quit and people will, will praise me for it and I quit mm -hmm. and people are still going to give me money to do this thing so is that tied into it too where why do some people get praised for quitting and some people are seen as you know I don't know what the opposite of praise is but <laughs> they're yeah. not quite as praised when they quit they're like doubted for it Thank or you. yeah this is um, why you write books so <laughs> Book, <books either. laughs> but um, um uh that's a really good question so i i know exactly what we're talking about i'm definitely familiar with those people and other kind of titans of tech who like their their stories their origin stories are glorified right and a big part of their origin stories is that they said f you the like traditional education and founded their companies um and i I guess, I mean, I, I as just like a general citizen, public observer of these people's stories, definitely understand that, yeah, people, people look to their like ability to like buck the status quo and quit college um, as like a thing to be admired. Mm. Um, but I, what I don't know, again, there's been a lot of like research done on these people. I, I personally don't know, well, what do their friends and family think of the decision at the time? You know, I don't, I don't know. Right. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing is, okay, Zuckerberg quit Harvard. Um, uh, Elizabeth Holmes quit Stanford. 
there's a lot of privilege wrapped up in that already, right? right. You know, I mean, they were always going to be fine, <laughs> you know, like, um, um, so I, I kind of question like just what risk it was that they were taking um, and if that risk needs to be as lauded as it has been, you know, um, but um, that being said, I mean, I think college isn't for everybody, you know, um, you, you hope it is, but uh, the other thing that's, that's really great about this country is that, okay, so say Zuckerberg wanted to go back to Harvard now and complete his BA, he could, you know, you can, you can go back, you know, I think that's another thing that I learned from writing the book is you can always, there are more quits that you have the power to unquit than you mm -hmm. think you do. Mm. And like, once you can understand that, like, oh, this doesn't have to be forever, kind of remove some of the risk from it, you know? And so, um, yeah. So if somebody, and I don't know if this is giving away anything from the book, if somebody were weighing quitting, like what are some like three things that they should be thinking about to kind of make that decision one way or the other? Oh, three things. Well, one, I mean, my, my response to me kind of maybe a little high level, but I think um, what, what I've learned about happy quitters is that, you know, one, they have a, they have good self-knowledge. They have good self-awareness. Um, uh, they know enough about themselves to like know what they're willing to trade off, right? Mm -hmm. I think to that, they also know what their values are. And so they know when a choice they've made is violating their values, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think also they, they have this sense of like abundance, I think is the word I want to say. Like, they don't think that life is a zero-sum game. They don't mm -hmm. think like, I live in scarcity, so I have to hang on to everything that I have. Mm -hmm. You know, I think they they believe and know and ultimately, you know, confirm for themselves that like, oh yeah, like I, my world was small and I've made it bigger. And um, yeah, so I, I think my, my comments are a little high level because I, I, you know, as I say in the book, like the book is, is um, intentionally not a how or when or why to quit book. It's not directive because it's such a personal decision, you know, such a personal decision. Um, case in point, like one of the first podcasts I did, um, I learned during the podcast that like both my hosts, my interviewer and I had quit an improv class in college. We had the exact same quitting experience at age 19. <laughs> and whereas for me, it was like the worst decision I ever made in my life. I harbored so much regret over not giving it a try and being a perfectionist. Um, and I, eight years later, I undid the quit. And now like improv is a huge part of my life and my business. For this woman, she was like, it was the best decision I ever made in my entire life. She's like, I would never go back, you know? <laughs> and so, so it just goes to show, you know, like it's, it's very individual, right? And, and no one but you can know if it's the right choice or not. But I think there are things you can know about yourself about if you feel like you're ready to make that bold choice. If you feel like you have, have done the self-interrogation to like understand that like, okay, I really think I'm limiting my, my regret. I have confidence in making this decision. Right. And I love, love, love that you included relationships in your book mm -hmm. and, and adding that 
yeah, quitting relationships is a thing, whether it's a romantic yeah. relationship or a friendship, like there's times and seasons where not everybody is for you all the time. So I like that you yeah. added that. So can you tell me your best quit relationship story? And it doesn't have to be super personal. Oh, oh, I got divorced last year. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Welcome to the club. Thank you. It is a wonderful club. I'm realizing a wonderful club. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Definitely like my biggest and best decision when it can't has come to quitting, I think for sure. Yeah. Yeah. But are you also, uh, I take it you're also divorced? Happily, happily. I divorced about uh, yeah. almost five years ago. And it was, you know, it's like you said, it's the making the decision is the hard part once you decide yeah. to do it it's all the fear about what is this going to mean yes. and and all of that but then once you get to the point where you make that decision and then everything opens up on the other side and so absolutely yeah. I mean, absolutely that's exactly how i felt it was like the the prior three years were so miserable and so fraught and exhausting and then the second i said i'm done trying it was just Oh my God, the whole universe opened up. I had so much more like emotional energy for other things. I mean, I wrote a book a few months later. It's something I never could have done if I had, you know, still been married to that person, you know? And so, um, yeah, I think that definitely was the most pivotal, pivotal one for me, um, for sure. And, and in that section, you know, there is a, there's a story from another woman who, um, uh, quit her marriage, a uh, really interesting story, also uh, a, a unique cultural story too. Mm. Um, and so I, I talk a little bit about my own, my own realizations of like when enough is enough and when things aren't matching your values, mm -hmm. you know, that sort of thing. So, yeah. Okay. So in terms of your family and culture and all of that good stuff, and they're looking at you now and they're like, eh, she's not yeah. quite, she's not quite in Hollywood, but She's doing this other stuff <laughs> yeah. that we never could have imagined for her. What is? Yeah, I think I think jokes on them. Jokes on them. <laughs> I mean, because they they were like, "Don't work in film and TV. That's unstable." And then here I am, like running my own company, and <laughs> that's unstable too. You know, so I think um, jokes on my family. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So if you <laughs> could look back, my final question for you: If you can look back in ten years what would you like to see in order to look back and think, yeah, I made it? Oh, gosh. Oh, I kind of like hate that phrase, I made I it. No, everybody oh. hates it, but I ask it anyway. <laughs> Can we turn into like a gerund? Like, oh, I am making it, or I don't, I don't know. Um, yeah. I will let you wordsmith this. Go ahead, workshop it. Impressive. Okay, all right. So <laughs> 10 years from now, if I were to look back, I'm gonna, I'm gonna like, I gotta like, um, I'm going to like reset the question in my own brain to answer it. Okay. So 10 years from now, if I'm looking back, what are the telltale signs to me that I have made it? My life has been worth it. My life has been what I want. Okay. Hmm. Well, I imagine myself 10 years from now that when I'm reflecting on it, I'm probably with a lot of friends, whether it's around this dinner table or it's on a vacation someplace together. I think that would probably be 
the vibe and the moment where I'd actually give myself the time to like reflect <laughs> on the past 10 years. Um, and I think like what I would, what I would feel good about is if the prior 10 years had been filled with joy, if it had been filled with good people, good food, um, a lot of life experiences. Um, and I think, I think above all else, I would say the prior 10 years had been well-lived if I did not live my life with inertia. If it wasn't like a blink and you miss it, oh my God, where are those 10 years gone? Like, no, if I can tell exactly where those 10 years went because I was intentional about it, and that will, that will feel really good. I love that answer. Yay. Mic drop. <laughs> thank you for your time i really appreciate it where can my listeners who want to buy your book or learn more about mind hatch where can they find you oh thank you so much um well the book i quit the life affirming joy of giving up is available on amazon and also on bookshop uh the hardcover will be coming out in the next week or so from when you're listening to this so uh, please look out for the hardcover as well um, and you can follow me on Instagram um, at Kunur Bahal. You can follow MindHatch as well um, at MindHatch LLC. And the book is on Instagram too. Please give the book a follow. I post a lot about happy quitters and uh, how and when quitting comes up in life in really great ways um, there. So please uh, give us a follow. And I'm um, so looking forward to staying engaged with you all. <laughs>